Okay, today we're doing a podcast where we're uh, going to be talking with a bunch of people. This is probably the most people we've ever had in a single podcast. And the important message is, Sep is coming back to the United States. And he'll be here a couple months. <laughs> yeah. Cheering goes here. <laughs> so I have four people with me on the mighty Skype. Um, the, the first person is Bill Schneiders, who I've recorded several podcasts with when Sep was in town the last time. Hi, Bill. Uh-huh. And uh, I, I believe, like Ivan refers to you as the as the punching bag, <laughs> uh, <laughs> because of there. Uh, because of the podcast where we talk about the cherry tree, and I just kept you know <laughs> going at you about that cherry tree, uh, which which by the way I think I think is one of the best all time podcasts, and it really demonstrates the value of permaculture over organic systems. No, well, and, it was. Timely too, because um, you know I had a neighbor that was actually putting, using sort of artificial uh, uh, those little things you tack on the pine trees to get to get rid of the pine beetle, and I was trying to look for some alternative solutions. So that yeah, even though it was a punching bag, it was a very timely podcast, and uh, that cherry tree did quite well this past summer, I must say too. So. Oh, good, 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 good. I'm going to take all the credit for that. <laughs> but but and then we also have Chad Johnson, who was also at that event. In fact, everybody, everybody who's on the phone today was at that event, mm-hmm. now that I think about it. So, Chad, where are you? I'm in my living room. Okay, <laughs> thank you, Chad. That was an awesome introduction. Actually, I'm Chad? in Duluth, Minnesota, and, uh, yeah, we had our first project inspired by the Montana Project up on the Spirit Mountain Farm that we just purchased right after that event, so... Things have been moving quickly and beautifully. We're recreating paradise up there. Um, and, and that was kind of an official Sepp Holzer event, but without Sepp Holzer. And right. I, and he got, I think that was the first one of that kind. And, and didn't you have, you had Neil Bertrando out there, too, Neil right? Neil was there, yeah. Yeah. Yep, he was very instrumental in that. And then, and then there's uh, Zachary Weiss. Yep, I'm in uh, Bozeman, Montana, um, building passive solar geothermal greenhouses, perpetualgreengardens.com, if anyone's interested in more. Um, and uh, same thing as Chad, after the Montana project, I found a land stewardship agreement where I'm working with a woman who owns the land uh, to transform it into paradise. And, I, and the, the greenhouse projects that you've been working on, um, those, those just seem to be uh, some of the most advanced greenhouse things that I've ever seen, where there's a, a focus on uh, reproduction of the species, and it's very polyculture-esque, unlike uh, a lot of other greenhouse projects. Absolutely, um, absolutely. A lot of perennials actually growing in the greenhouse all year long, and it's become so popular that they've... Uh, uh, now uh, limited the amount that people can come and visit it because uh, too much traffic is bad for the greenhouse. Absolutely. And it's a full e- ecosystem. Uh, so there's Pacific Northwest tree frogs, there's keystone predators, all the beneficial insects. And so, yeah, unfortunately, we do have to limit traffic, but we'll be giving tours this spring um, so people can find out more on the website. And what is the website? Perpetualgreengardens.com. Okay. And then, uh, and then probably the star of the show today would be uh, Judith, uh, who was one of the interpreters uh, there. And Judith has a book 
and has been with Sepp on many of his projects throughout Europe and in the United States. Thanks for coming, Judith. Thank you for Judith? inviting me. Yeah. What, what is the name of your book? It's it's currently in German, but I heard a rumor that it's being translated to English. Yeah, that uh, in in German the name is Jedem sein Grün, and I tell you, I don't know so far how how the English name will be because if you translate Jedem sein Grün to English, it's uh, it will say uh, anyone's green, and that's not the exact same meaning than it should be in German. And now the uh, Chelsea Queen is searching for an English uh, title, and it will be out in springtime. <laughs> oh, excellent. So just a few months. <laughs> yes, but I don't oh, know what the name so far. <laughs> Okay. All right. All right. Well, we'll you know we've got a great relationship with Chelsea Green, so I'm yeah. I'm sure that uh, they'll they'll ping us when the time comes that it's ready okay. and, and uh, got to get it out there. So and uh, um, at the same time, you went through the two year program with SEP. Is that right? Uh, now I have to correct you. Uh, when SEP started the education, he had a two years program that he took that for two uh, groups. And I was the first group only taking a three-year, sorry, a one-year education uh, because they figured out that two years are too long. Uh, And so we were the first group doing the one-year education. But from now then on, I was traveling with Seb. So I had another year education with traveling with him. Right. It seems like you wrapped up your 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 training. Yeah. Um, and which is where you basically go and do tons and tons and tons of stuff with SAP. And then you basically just kept doing that beyond that and continuing to travel with SAP onto a variety of different projects. So, uh, and that knowledge is the knowledge that we need to tap into today because we, this will be the last installment of the review, the book review for SAP Holzer's Permaculture. Um, so that's a book called Sepp Holzer's Permaculture, by, of course, Sepp Holzer. And the last, the last chapter in the book is called Projects. And um, so we were talking just before we started recording this podcast about how um, this book was written about eight years ago, and then it was translated to English about a year and a half ago. And so, but the content that's in the book is still eight years old. And um, uh, and it's just such a tiny little sampling of the stuff that he had done eight years ago. And then on top of that, there's so much more that's been done since then. So uh, we can cover the stuff that's actually in the book. Um, and uh, and then we can talk about stuff that's been done since then. But you know what? I think what I, I think the best thing to do right now is let's start first talking about stuff that's not in the book because Judith has to go in a little bit here and we made a list of uh, six places that uh, are SEP projects since the book was written. Spain, Portugal, Siberia, Scotland, Colombia, and Greece. And um, and so so Judith, I, I think this now becomes the Judith show and as you, uh, I mean, I've, I've heard about a lot of these and I know a fair amount about all of them but Greece. But um, I, I think, you know, I believe, are there any of these that you have not been to? Uh, so I have been to uh, Russia, I've been to Portugal, I have to be 
been in Spain because Colombia and Greece uh, was before my my time, <laughs> and uh, I saw Spain and uh, Portugal. Uh, uh, Spain was done. There are only two lakes missing out of twenty. Uh, they have eighteen there. I saw eighteen, and in Portugal they're right in between of building lakes. So I saw one big one done. That's the one what is all over the pictures. Uh, and in Russia, I went to four or five different projects where he did some consulting and an education group. Okay. All right. So let's start talking about Spain then. And so my knowledge of Spain is is that, um, I mean, are, are, are Spain, Portugal, and Russia, are all three of those desert sites? Um, it's uh, Spain and Portugal are desert sites. And in Spain, it's uh, it's. I think you can leave the project like that with the 18 lakes, uh, and it really it it changed uh, the landscape so much that you can't believe it. And uh, what we did with the group there, when I was there, we uh, did them, uh, we built them a new septic pla- where, where you can clean up the grey water. I don't know what's okay. the name in English, uh, and it's really this place is marvelous. And but. If you go to Portugal, you see much, even more the change from desert to to paradise. I think, yeah. So now, when when you were telling me about um, the rainfall in Spain and Portugal, you were really emphatic that um, that the rain that does fall there falls like um, pretty much just in the winter time, and that in the warmer months there's really no rain at all. So that so the challenge becomes how do you get the um, the moisture that came in the wintertime to stick around until uh, you know throughout the summer when it and then and then on top of that that the heat in the summer is pretty extreme it's it's not like like just warm days they are extremely hot days so it's a very desiccating okay yeah that's true and uh, like in Portugal they told us um, uh, that the lake they have one big lake at the first time built. I think it's about four years ago, and it only took that lake two years to get filled up with two seasons of rain, and it never dries out. Uh, and it's uh, and that tells you how it it's really how sap can show that you if you keep water, you keep it. It you don't lose it anymore, and that's amazing if you see it. And it's so hot in the summer, you think you everything will dry out, but not these lakes. I think that you know, actually I, developed its own spring too, so it's kind of like it's it's pulled water or something from below, or created its own well that maybe was there at one time. You know, there was an interesting thing up in Montana when I was up there um, to make that video for the Hugo Culture video. Um, the uh, the lake, the the ponds, um, the the uphill ponds were empty. And um, they were. This was a fairly new thing that had just occurred. And apparently, somebody who uh, um, is on that little creek upstream just uh, took all took took the water from all of the creek, 100%, for their irrigation needs up creek. And they kind of didn't care about anybody, you know, downstream getting any water. So they just took it all, um, and they were watering their crops. And so there was suddenly no water coming in, and um, and so the system did kind of uh, drain out a little bit, and it wasn't looking as as pretty as it had earlier in the year. Kind of a kind of a weird weird thing. I would think that you know 
that would, like the government would say, that's not okay. You can't take all the water. But apparently, they don't care. How about so, the big lake, Paul? How about the big lake? Was that one still full? Um, now, when you say the big lake, you're not talking about Flathead Lake. You're talking about the lake that Sepp built, right? Right. The, the bigger lake on Katarina's okay. property, right. yeah. It was still there. I mean, it was. It still had water in it, but um, uh, the water level had dropped below where it wasn't going out anymore because there was nothing going in. Right. Right. And and so, um, uh, it, yeah, it was still there. It was still there. All right. So I'm sorry. I, I kind of took us on a little on a little tangent. Um, the Spain project. Um, from what from what I know, it was like uh, they showed up and it's pretty much um, dying oak trees. Uh, peppering the landscape, uh, and they had uh, sand. Like, it wasn't, the sand wasn't in dunes, but it was like thinking about someday becoming dunes. And the uh, the, the trees that were there were kind of like, yeah, we're, we're, we're prepared to bow out and go with the whole dunes package. <laughs> that, that was... Yeah, tech- mm- <laughs> so, Judith, are you saying that's exactly correct? Uh, it, uh, it was before, but when I was there, I was there... Uh, uh, 2010 uh, that was gone I mean the trees are are back to life they're getting small little babies baby trees and uh, the sand is gone the the soil is really is improving and so now they they try to make a study for the uh, European Union to show them what you can do if you improve the water household and and now this this land is uh, owned by whom? Uh, that's the Princess of Liechtenstein. Liechtenstein is a really small, tiny little country in our land in uh, in Europe. It's uh, well known because you can park your money there. <laughs> um, <laughs> a lot of rich people have money there, and they're only living on on this kind of money. And it's a small, it's a family. They're really rich. Uh, I don't know how how you say to blue blooded. Uh, People, royals. The royals, right. The royals. right. And so she is the sister of the empire of Liechtenstein, and she got married with a Spain guy, and she has a big place there in, down in, in Spain. Okay, all right. And, and so Sepp is their gardener, <laughs> the royal gardener. Say <laughs> so that a boy, can you put a garden right there? <laughs> Make sure it'll last. None of that slapshot work. <laughs> you know, Paul, it's, it's interesting, but uh, when Judith was out here in L.A. with me, she showed it to me on Google Earth, and you can actually see the 18 lakes that have been created, kind of like in a big semicircle around the main estate property. And it's pretty, it's pretty amazing because you can see the stark contrast between this really dry desert landscape and then there's just these spots of blue, uh, you know, surrounding the entire property. It's really pretty amazing to see. I, well, four years ago, when I first got to meet Sepp, <clears throat> um, I spent uh, like two weeks hanging out with him. And... Um, he one of the things that he did was he gave some presentations on this land, and uh, the way I heard it, the way I heard it described by him, was that uh, uh, it was this, you know, it was it was just one step shy of being sand dunes, and then they had these these oak trees that were clearly dying, and uh, and and Sepp looked at the land and he said there used to be lakes here, and these other experts said no uh and uh, and so Sepp's response was. Yeah, huh? And and so then he uh, basically uh, 
didn't really do a whole lot, but he kind of nuanced the lakes back into existence. And so, and, and, and so then it's kind of like, you know, take that, ha! You know, so that was my impression of what he said. <laughs> I, I, can, I can tell you another story about Russia. Okay. If you want me, the short story, uh, I went with him to four different places where the people asked him what to do. And uh, all these people had paperwork done that where you can find the water. And all the paperwork was wrong. And I, I need to stop you for a second, Judith, because the sound is going wonky. Um, Zach, could you mute your thing for a minute? Okay, Judith, sorry, go ahead. Okay, uh, and uh, all these people had this paperwork done, and uh, they, he, they told him where the water should be, and they were, all the paperwork was wrong, and it was always Sepp being right. Right. Well, yeah. now, in, in Siberia, um, or in Russia, in the, in the Russian projects, from from what little I understand, uh, um, Sepp is kind of treated like, uh, oh, I don't know, a god? Um it's like uh, my understanding is is that when he arrives, he tries to dress differently and tuck away his hat. Otherwise, he'll be mobbed by crowds at the airport that will recognize him. I can tell you that's the truth because we arrived in uh, Moscow, and uh, we there was uh, there were already some a lot of people waiting for us, and uh, I think a TV station, and then they brought us to a restaurant to have a, a, a private meeting, but all these people knew, knew Sepp there, and so he had to give some autograms and make pictures there. So <laughs> he is more known in Russia than in Austria. So in, in Russia, he's a rock star. <laughs> so, yes, <he laughs> which is. is awesome. A permaculture rock star. How awesome is that? Just the, the general public recognizes him. Uh, this is the guy that's going to totally make everything in Russia awesome. So, yes. all right. <clears throat> Sorry, that was uh, uh, my little uh, <laughs> side thing there. Um, but now, I, I I thought that there was this whole Siberian project of the whole, uh, um, like a family would end up with a hectare project. And is that on hold or is that still going forward? Uh, you'll find that in all Russia because that's the Anastasia movement. And the Anastasia movement is a society, and they get the buy, uh, buy from the government in Russia. For each uh, group, 50 families, 50 hectares. Each family gets one hectare. And so you have these projects with SEP all over, and he, um, they involve him to change the rules, and they involve him how to build the houses. And yeah, they're, they're the biggest fan group of, of SEP in whole Russia. All right, tell us a little bit about Portugal. Um, yeah, Portugal, um, that's a community of 150 people, and uh, they didn't, they, they bought this desert, and they, they realized that they not once arrived there, so they, they picked up, they called for SEP, and they, he developed them a system of 10 lakes, and uh, they built about 80, uh, four years ago the first lake, and that already made just a big chance that you have you you if you walk there you find the Garden of Eden you walk in the middle of vegetables and fruit trees and it's it's amazing and they are so far that they're having now open days where all the people from Portugal can come because uh, they want to try to get thousand lakes in the in this area done like they could do it. 
So it it was it was also a desert before, but that was before your time. And and now now it's 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 uh, clearly on the way to becoming a jungle. So um, uh, yeah, if you on the on the land of these people, it's uh, getting a jungle. But if you only cross one step to the to the neighbors, it's desert. Okay. All right. All right. <clears throat> so um, and you return to the desert land, so you can kind of see the contrast between the two. And I think like one example from the Montana land, which is probably also going on in the the Portugal Portugal and Spain projects, is that. He was there for just two weeks. He came for two weeks, he did some stuff, and then he left. And when he left, it looked like hell. And, um, but then it's like, then things started to grow. And then when I showed up and took that video, it was months later, and it was definitely turning into a jungle. Um, and, and I think that um, as the years pass, it's going to get junglier and junglier, even if he doesn't ever come back. So I imagine that when you look at Spain and Portugal, it's like now look at these desert systems, and these are, and these two places, Spain and Portugal, are much desertier than um, uh, the, the the Montana project. And when you look at like the video in the Montana project, you could see mountains in the background where it's clearly some pretty dry landscape. Yeah, those but, projects also get less rain in Montana too. Right. So they're drier than the Montana Project. And I believe that where the Montana Project was done, so a lot of Montana, it's like um, only, um, uh, uh, you know, 13 inches, 14 inches of rain per year. But I think where that project was, that right next to the lake, it's um, like 19 inches per year. But I imagine that where the project was done, it's a little bit drier, but not that much. But maybe maybe only 17 or 18 inches of rain a year. But yeah. then the stuff where those hills in the background, that's going to be more like your um, uh, 12 to 15 inches of rain a year. But, and you know, the big difference between Portugal and Montana is that uh, Montana had the wetland and Portugal had no water. So in Portugal, they they have lakes, but there was no water flowing into the lake? Uh, at Portugal, they had nothing. No lakes, uh, no water, nothing. Right, they had no lakes before, but there was. You're, I think what you're saying no. is, is that they came and built. So Seb came in and he built an enormous bowl for a lake, and like with this whole mentality, if you build it, they will come. But there was no, there was no like creek or, or anything dribbling into it. So all the water that's in that lake is going to be. There's not going to be a creek feeding it. Is that what you're saying? Exactly. They started out only with rainwater because there where he did the lake, that was the, the area where they had the street. So there was no creek, there was no uh, water. It was they only collected the rainwater. But now they're starting to get creeks back. Oh wow, that is something I did not know. Um, <clears throat> and that makes it like ten times more awesome because, of course, when you do that. There is this added challenge of being able to get oxygen into the water. So, um, is the water staying clean? It's perfectly clean. Uh, it's because if if you read Seb's books, you can see that he is also building deep zones and flat zones. And if you have a situation like that, at first you have a movement in the water, and then he also has 
a really small little tiny uh, way for the water to get out. So there's a, a permanently movement and the winds are coming up now with the water. So you have a really wonderful clear water. Excellent. That is that is amazing. <clears throat> um, all right. So uh, um, for the for the three that you've been to, Judith, the Spain, the Portugal, and uh, Russia, do you have anything else to add to those? Montana. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've covered Montana a lot in the past um, um, projects, but when the, the Montana project that we covered in the past though was the one in Dayton. And I, I think I heard that like ten years ago he was in Montana somewhere, but I'm I'm not sure where and I'm not sure of the details of that project. I think it was the Indian um, Reservation, Paul. Yeah, but he we were on the Indian Reservation. You, he was somewhere with the Indians. I I believe he was in uh, Boulder, Montana, and there was a conference of um, Native American elders and shamans that he was invited to. 10 years ago, and that was the time that he came to Montana previously. Okay. I know he's bonkers about Native American culture, and the Native Americans usually seem to be bonkers about him. I know that when he was here four years ago, there he uh, there was a whole day where n- none of us got to see him because he was off with the local Native Americans, and he came back like they just, they just poured on the gifts. They gave him an, an an outfit and a new hat. And he loves his hats, so uh, um, it was apparently a big ceremony. And now he's officially part of their tribe or something. So, um, uh, but it was a big deal, and he's just crazy about it. I, I want, to, want to tell you something because I have to leave pretty soon. Uh, what the big change for him was this year and last year in Montana. He was so uh, impressed of all you guys there because you are so enthusiastic and so really good students that he decided now to send us over as much as possible, his students, and that he might come uh, for sure every year in springtime or whenever he has time. But once a year he will show up. Oh, that's excellent. That is that is great. <clears throat> and, and I hope he shows up to my neighborhood the most because that way I don't have to go drive as far. <laughs> and then it makes me feel special. <laughs> So, um, uh, Judith, I know one of the things we're about to go into is Scotland. And so before you go, my question is is about, it sounds like the pH of everything they're working with there is extremely low, like pH 4 to 5. And so what did SEPT do to mitigate the pH problems? Uh, at, at Scotland, uh, you know, I only, also like you know this project from uh, telling him, but uh, I think what he did, he um, also cut down all the, uh, the forest there and he built up some hügel beds to break down the wind and then he started uh, what, I don't know, uh, I, I think if I tell you something, it might be wrong because I'm not so informed. I only know that he changed completely uh, the, the planting there, that he took away the trees and so he built up his hügelbeet culture, uh, cultures, and so he could plant um, grains and vegetables. And it's, it changed really from a dry, again a dry desert, a different kind of desert, to a, to a um, really wonderful soil and wonderful veg, uh, vegetable stuff, whatever. <laughs> okay, so I'm guessing you have to leave us now. <clears throat> uh, pretty soon, uh, but I only want uh, maybe just. 
uh, what I wanted to tell is that I'm really happy that we can come back as as possible, as often as possible, and I really want to invite all you guys then in summer to Austria because we are trying to organize a tour where we can bring you to all the different places where Seb worked in Austria. Yes. I, yeah, I think I think uh, <clears throat> that's very tempting to me, um, and and so I want to hear details about how how that might work out, and um, uh, and you know costs and all that stuff. But uh, I, I don't I, do we I don't think we have that information available just yet. But I'm looking forward to getting it. Um, uh, you will get it pretty soon, and yeah, I think I have to leave then. Do you have any more question? Short question for me. I'm 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 about to jump into Scotland. I'm going to try and make some guesses at what I would do to um, reduce the to, to counter the pH problems with all of that uh, extremely low pH stuff. But uh, I can't think of anything. Oh wait, what about Greece? You've got a special story about Greece. Okay, a short story about Greece. Um, uh, a cloister with nuns invited Seb to come there, and he w- went there and uh, tried to help them, and he said what he wants to change, but the mayor of the town there said, I only will allow that if you pay me some, I don't know if the right name, black money, you know, not uh, under the table. We say that in Austria like that. And Seth said, I'm not a guy who is doing that. I'm not paying you like this. If you like it, I do it. If you don't like it, I leave. And he left because they didn't change their mind. And when he was gone, the nuns called him crying on the phone that everything burned down because it, that, exactly that happened what Sepp uh, told them what will happen. So it's not, like, it's not like the mayor guy went and burned it down. Whatever the fire thing was, is it, was it natural causes? It was natural causes, but it, it happened because the mayor uh, didn't... Uh, didn't allow it and they only would have allowed it if they would have paid it you understand what I mean <laughs> I, yeah yeah I, I, so, and, so and what Sepp said, said I never do that if you do it you do it If you, I don't pay for it right right yeah. so bribes he's not he's not paying anybody any bribes yeah you know All right man that is that is wild that is yeah. really wild it is but it's well, difficult <laughs> But well, thanks for joining us, Judith. On that, you know, a lot of really awesome information there, and uh, and I, I'm sure my pod people will be very happy to hear it all. Thank you for asking me. And if you, whatever you want to ask me at another time, I, I will be with you. Okay, well, I think we should do these more often. We'll do some more of these soon. Great. But off you go. Go do your other thing. Thank you, and it was great to talk to you. Have a good time over there. All right, thanks, Judith. Thanks, Judith. All right, guys. Bye, Judith. We're on our own now, so um, uh, I want to wrap up with. I want to move on to the Scotland project, and so um, and and that is one that's inside the the Sepulchre's Permaculture book, um, and uh, uh, in fact, it's the first one that he mentions in there. Um, <clears throat> and the first paragraph is in here is. The Permaculture Project in the Scottish Highlands was in cooperation with the Langes-Swarovski family. I'm probably butchering that name. Uh, The goal was to create a permaculture garden for their private use day-to-day. This shared project gave me the opportunity to try out methods on the acid peat soil 
The pH value was between 4 and 5 of the Scottish heathland. So now, when your pH gets that low, hardly anything will grow. And um, and it's kind of like... Uh, uh, and a lot of Scotland is that way too, where it's like it's just there's no trees growing as far as the eye can see. It just goes on and on and on. Although I'm looking at these pictures, I can see some trees in it. Um, but some of the pictures, there are no trees. But um, uh, I think that um, one of the big things that they have in Scotland is even though they might have some moisture, it's they have this this wind. The wind just goes on and on and on. So um, much like what Judith was saying, I imagine that what they did is they added a lot of texture to the landscape. They added the berms and the hugelkultur beds. Um, and then uh, they probably planted a lot of stuff that um, could tolerate that, uh, the, the very uh, acidic soil. And then I would imagine that they planted a bunch of stuff that would um, uh, possibly be uh, heavy calcium accumulators where it would bring up a lot of calcium into the soil, thus raising the pH. Um, I, I don't know if any of you guys have any knowledge of how they corrected the, or how they dealt with this very low pH problem. You know, didn't, was Judith saying that he cut down the trees and took out a lot of vegetation that was there? And then when they're planting things like, I guess it was a perennial wheat that she was talking about that was in there, I'm guessing that would bring in a lot of birds or game, and they'll just start you know, manuring the place. So it's kind of interesting to hear that he would just go in and and take stuff out. But I guess if he's replacing it with stuff that's going to bring in wildlife, he's kind of changing the dynamic that way. Because I guess they got positive results with no real work to maintain it. Right. Well, in the end, of course, it was awesome. But the uh, um, I, I think that the important stuff is is that like if, if there's a lot of conifer trees growing there, conifers will make the soil more acidic, and so you know yeah. I think I think a lot of a lot of subsystems it's like okay here you get to a spot and the soil is acidic and there's a lot of conifer trees. First thing you do is you take down a lot, not all of them, but a lot of them, and then um, I make them into hugelkultur beds. And then that's going to um, be one step in reducing the acidity. Um, so that, that's, a, that's a way to start. You know, I've always wondered the difference of using the pine in the beds, if that's going to cause like a pH difference. Uh, maybe you're just growing different things on it. See, now I think that the reason why the pH is low... I mean, some people believe it's the duff from the tree, but I, you know what? I think that the bark does have a low pH, but um, I, my understanding is is that it's the roots of the living tree draw calcium out of the soil, and and uh, in large quantities, they just really drain the soil of calcium, hmm. and um, so then that kind of makes me think, well, calcium's a mineral, therefore, isn't the wood gonna like have lots of calcium in it, so um, uh, and therefore be a higher pH. Yeah, that's really interesting, Paul. So I'm I'm not I'm not sure about that. But one thing's for sure is that if you take the trees out, the pH will start to go back up, and um, and so I don't know. I'm I'm just kind of thinking like, and, and then for a lot of uh, Scotland, I mean they've got peat bogs everywhere, and peat has a pH of 4.5, so very very low pH. 
Um, and so it, it's like, you know, and they'll have places where it'll be like 20 feet deep of peat. So you got all this organic matter, but nothing will grow. Yeah. So, so then it's kind of like, all right, how do you fix that? How do you get in there and mend that? Now, of course, one of the things that, that he introduced, which Judith pointed out, was he introduced his special grain. And uh, he refers to it as Russian corn, but it's a, apparently a type of a perennial rye for which he's had a, um, a pretty uh, extreme breeding program for decades. And, uh, and, of course, the thing he always says is um, you, you collect the grain that is the best grain from the crappiest soil. And, and then that's the grain that you use for your seed um, over and over and over again. And then he'll often get the grain to be eight and a half feet tall. But I believe that in the Scotland project, it never really got more than six and a half feet tall. But still, the fact that it grew meant that it was hard at work improving the soil. <clears throat> you know, Paul, it talks about, too, that he, you know, in the book, it mentions that he sowed uh, that crop mixture with some of the ancient cereals, he calls it. And it's, it's in German, emmer, eichhorn, and ancient Siberian wheat. But uh, I'm not sure which the emmer and eichhorn are, but... He also used a lot of legumes that, uh, you know, soil-improving legumes. Um, and I remember asking him specifically in Montana about this. And, I, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but he, he said something to the effect that, like, the hugel beds eventually will fix any kind of soil type. And he didn't really elaborate on that, but maybe just eventually the breakdown and the heat and the composting effect that taking place inside that hugel bed eventually will restore more of a pH balance to that soil. But... Um, the book itself talks about how that, you know, in 2003, they laid this soil and this seed mixture and the legumes, um, as well as a catch crop of vegetables like radishes and lettuce and so forth. And that by 2004, one year later, the whole area was completely transformed. So uh, probably the combination of the two, the, the right seed mixture and the hoople beds, you know, allowed uh, things to flourish there. Yeah, I, I, I think so. One of the big things that you see happen at these projects, um, because he's storing the water, so there's very lush growth because water is not a limiting factor anymore with the hugel cultures and the water retention structures. And then he's always just growing whatever can grow, lots of biomass, cycling that into the soil. As that breaks down and forms hummus, as does the hugel culture, uh, hummus is one of the best substances on the earth for um, buffering and neutralizing pH. And so I'm sure adding all that organic matter to the soil really helps buffer the pH whichever way it needs to go. If you have a high pH, it'll help buffer it lower and vice versa. And so I think that's what Zepp's getting at when he says the hugel cultures will eventually uh, repair any soil problems. Well, of course, the peat is already, I mean, the peat is already pure um, uh, organic matter, you know, so it's like, you know, just just balancing on the edge of being humic acid, so it should be humus. Um, and, and so it's like, it's, it's kind of like, so while everything what you're saying is true, peat is like one of those exceptions, and it comes from the fact that it's just been, it's gotten so old and it's so acidic. And, and, you know, it's the acidity of it uh, from from years of, of raining and years. I mean, it's a great example also of how organic matter can build in a northern climate as opposed to a tropical climate where it, it's very difficult to build. So so you think of the peat bogs where, where the organic matter has been building for so, so, so very long. <clears throat> so um, organ the, the organic matter thing uh, isn't isn't a 100 percent solution. But typically it is. And so I kind of wonder about, like, 
when you start building the hookah culture beds, if you might start getting some of that pH edge thing going on, and once the edge gets started, then that helps to make it so that plants that like a higher pH are able to cope. Yeah. Interesting. So leaving the, the Scotland project behind, um, and I remember when he talked about the Scotland thing four years ago, that he kept doing that thing where uh, he was like, okay, everybody has to turn off all their recording devices. I'm going to say something that can't be recorded. And then he would say things which didn't seem all that different from the other things that he said. And then it's like, okay, you can turn your recording devices back on again. <laughs> so, okay, all right, all right. I think I think part of it was is that I think that the guy that owns the land is like, um, you know, a, a big name in food. There, like like a big food producer, like uh, um, so. Here in the United States, we would have a brand like Kraft. So um, maybe it was like that. It's like a, a, a major supermarket brand of food, but um, uh, but basically, it seems like this guy was kind of like uh, thinking the food that I sell is unacceptable, and so he's wanting to learn more about how to grow a higher quality of food. And Sepp was teaching him, so I think he did go to the best source. All right, uh, moving on to Thailand, which is in the book. This is kind of an interesting project, an orphanage, which currently has 40 children in its care. The couple that management told me they would like to increase the capacity of the orphanage to 100 children. The goal was for the orphanage to be able to grow enough food to make it self-sufficient. So it's got him, it's got him standing out there in this massive field. It looks like they've probably got a good 80 acres or better. And one of the things that they wanted to have done was to make it so that when an airplane flew over, and apparently they're in some sort of flight path or flight zone, that they wanted people to be able to read the words love and peace. And um, and so then Sepp went about, basically it looks like he's making crater gardens that are so massive but shaped into letters. Right. Is it is that what happened? I mean, there's no pictures in the book of like, and here's what it looks like afterwards from an airplane. There's just the uh, the plans. I don't know if they ever actually did this. Yeah, it looks like just big water retention spaces in the uh, you know lakes or ponds shaped in the in the letters love and peace. So um, interesting. Right. And then the main landscape with an island there. Yeah, yeah, I, and, you know, and and um, I mean, gr- granted, it, it seems a little sappy and whatnot, but hey, you know, some people are into that. I I, I just kind of think that uh, that would have been awesome to get a picture of that if it if it ended up being true, if it ended up being if it ended up happening. Maybe it's uh, kind of the same route, like um, was it Ikumoto who where you write love on your water bottle and it'll change it, except instead of the water bottle, they just put it right on the earth. <laughs> <laughs> it was possible. They should. Do, That's possible. They could do an ice crystal check on that. <laughs> and then the uh, the last project that's listed in chapter six is this um, uh, project that is in um, Austria, <clears throat> and uh, I think this is one of those things where uh, you know Sepp has donated his time, you know, like huge tracts of time. And they've, they, they've got these different gardens, the Mediterranean garden, the water garden, the sensory garden. And so the idea is, is that if somebody's in a wheelchair, 
that everything in this would be wheelchair accessible. And, and so the garden is designed entirely for people that are in wheelchairs and need to be able to go out and enjoy and appreciate a garden. And, and so all yeah. the pictures that are in here are of the construction. And uh, there's, uh, it's unfortunate that there aren't um, pictures of the completed project. Maybe, there's, maybe they are on uh, Kramerhoff.at. It's possible. It looks very much the first picture on page 214. It's a lot like Chad's renovation on his 30 acres outside of Duluth. Um, you know, a crater garden to block the wind, create a lot of microclimates, and, and uh, you know, really nice project for uh, disabled folks there. Now, is there a lot of wind in Duluth? On the area I'm at, there's a little bit of wind coming from a few directions because we're at the edge of a edge of a ridge. It comes over the hill there. Of course, we got the lake. We're kind of the intersection of like three different wind systems. You know, it's the Rockies, the Gulf Streams, and then the Canadian. So yeah, okay. we get our dose of wind for sure. All right, so there's so there's a bit of wind, and uh, um, now I've always kind of turned to. Um, Berms, the the 15-foot-tall berms, uh, as a, a, a great uh, wind solution thing. But it, but it sounds like you went with the, the Crater Garden? We did, but there's uh, definitely terraces where, I don't know, Zach, do you think they go up or build 15 or 12 feet or something? I would say so, right in that neighborhood. Yeah, you definitely have some wind block there. Um, and, of course, the terrace levels down below because even when we were out there that day, Chad, uh, when you stand at the top, I was definitely feeling much more breeze than when I walked down to the bottom, which is now basically, since it's winter, it's kind of an ice skating rink, uh, more or less. But, uh, but there was definitely a, a difference in climate. It was calm. There was no wind. It was probably 10 to 12 degrees warmer, at least, um, than, than standing on the top uh, edge of the, of the berm the, you know, that goes up higher. Right. It's a double level, so you can walk on walk on the first level and then walk up to the next level. You know, I think that would be a, a great uh, YouTube video, would be to um, have a thermometer or a collection of thermometers and, and be able to say, okay, the temperature outside today is really cold, and it's exactly this cold. And then we go down into um, the crater garden, and uh, the temperature here is, oh, look, 15 degrees warmer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that would something, be cool. Something like that. And and then plus, of course, if you can stop the wind, then it's like um, you just doubled your annual rainfall in a way just because of the fact that it's less desiccating that way. The wind is so amazing at making things cold and dry. Yeah, less evaporation. and Right, and we get a lot of uh, rocks as the spillover into the next crater garden, so... You can definitely see it's warmer on one side, but altogether down there, it's warmer and calmer. Okay, let's talk about uh, Sepp coming to the United States. So he's on his way. He's going to be here. What are what are the dates and what are the places? Well, he lands in California. Is it March 20th or 21st? It's, yeah, the, the first event in California is March 21st through the 25th. And that's the one in Loma Mar, California, which is just due west of San Jose, so kind of close to Santa Cruz, uh, right near Pescadero. And it's interesting because each of these properties where we're doing, you know, the upcoming four events is a little bit different, you know, climate and uh, soil type and um, 
you know, one's kind of flat and dry in Bozeman, the other one's kind of more mountainous. So the one, it's going to be interesting to see the diversity of how SEP tackles each project and the recommendations he makes. But the, the first one in Lomamar is more almost like a rainforest. Um, it's uh, Mark's property, and it's big, old-growth redwood trees, um, you know, things hanging down from the rainforest can be almost like, a, you know, like something Tarzan would be swinging on, uh, old vines and things like that, a lot of humus, a lot of uh, organic material. But then on the other side of the property, which, by the way, I think it's about 17 acres, uh, this, this site. On the other side, there's a nice south-facing slope where I'm pretty sure, you know, Seth's going to want to do some kind of fruit tree orchard and or hugel beds and so forth and take advantage of that, that sun and, and the, uh, the south-facing. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, how he ends up <laughs> recommending, makes recommendations to Mark there. So that's the first one, March 21st through the 25th. And it's very and then, steep there, too. He's got quite a slope, so I think Sepp will feel right at home. I know uh, he's got a lot of uh, mushroom going on there, but when he asked Sepp about it in Montana, I don't think he expected this answer, but I think he was telling him, cut down the trees. <laughs> and uh, maybe he didn't realize they're the redwoods or uh, what he's got going on there, but, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see what he does. Yeah, it'll yeah, be very... The California project will be very interesting because oftentimes when Zepp's coming in, it's this really degraded, damaged landscape, um, whereas the project in California, it's really a healthy old forest. Um, so it'll be fascinating to see what what kind of vision Zepp has for the place. All right, then uh, next stop. Next, next stop, stop is in, is in oh. Montana. Uh, it's going to be March 27th through the 31st. Uh, we're going to be looking at two, maybe three different sites while he's here. So we'll have, um, it's very dry, semi-arid, high alpine desert, basically. Um, one of the sites is very flat. One of the sites is in the foothills of the mountains. And then one of the sites is up in the mountains. So people will really get an idea of what to do in these different landforms and on these different places in the larger landscape. Okay. And then the next one? And in Duluth, Minnesota, we're from April 6th to April 10th. And it's an old Finnish farm. It's got a, a, a lot of diversity. And it's got half of it is wetland, which is there's water coming in from a couple sides. Uh, it's on the top of Spirit Mountain Ridge where you've got a trout pond and a trout stream and then intersecting with another waterway. And then uh, through the pastures where we already set up the start of the crater gardens. And, um, yeah, it goes from rocky cliff to a uh, southern-facing pasture to uh, there's some white pines and oak and maple, a little bit of everything. Okay. And then what's the fourth destination? That's actually Detroit, and that's in between the Montana and the Minnesota stop. And it's a three-day in Detroit. And is it April 1st to April 4th or April 3rd? April 2nd to April 4th. Yeah. I should say that one is different just because um, these other sites, when we started up, we had a vision of creating other Krometerhof models, since that's the only one in the world that exists right now. 
and uh, separately like the idea, which kind of spurred on what's been developing with all of these. So now it turned into that we're able to offer certification, um, which I don't think he's done off the farm before. And, yeah, it's a great opportunity how things have been developing. Okay. Well, it sounds like overall the schedule is very tight because I know that uh, in the past when when he has come, I would get bombarded with people asking me, hey, can Sepp come to my place while he's in town? And um, I, I kind of – and the answer has always been – He's book solid, so he he can't. Um, but is that the is that the case again? He, he had to cancel for us actually too. I didn't know what he had going on, but I think he's he seems like he's just a really busy guy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's it, been my impression. Right now, normally he's like a teenager. He's got all this energy, and he is just. It seems like he's getting faster or doing more towards the end of his life. I don't know, but they said he's optimizing his system. He's really, uh, they said he's really been excited. Uh, there's a point in his life where he's really kind of coming on strong. So now I know I'm going to be at the Bozeman event. Now are, are any of you guys going to be at all of the events? I'll be at yeah, I think I will be. Uh, this is Bill. Um, I don't know, Chad and Zach, are you guys planning on all the events? Yep. That's yep, I'll be at all of them as well. Okay. All right. So now I, I've, I've had some people contact me and ask me about going to some of the other ones also, but it's kind of like um, – uh, I, as as cool as that would be, it's it's like uh, I've I've got to try and balance between a lot of different factors, and so it's it's like so I you know each time somebody asks me, hey, can you come to this event? And it's kind of like, can you like cover my airfare and then like give me a place to stay? And then there's no response. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it's like uh, um, you know I'm I'm kind of feeling like okay if i go i i've still got to try and manage my empire but i could i could go and do some stuff with it but but it's kind of like ah you don't need me there anyway you got sap you don't need me (laughs) you know paul i got a really big suitcase if uh we could figure something out we could sneak you through for sure yeah there there would definitely be no overcharge for having a, a suitcase that weighs over 300 pounds <laughs> well i think you know well, we would we would obviously love to have you um at, you know as many or all of these events if possible and if it works your schedule i think we just have to kind of as we get closer to the event make sure we're covering our cost but uh you know if it's there in the budget uh we'd love to have you because i know like in montana you know not only were you one of the people that helped drive the attendance and the awareness but it was great having you around because I can remember having lunch with you a couple times and we would all sit around with like 10, 12 people just chatting about, you know, the wisdom that just dispensed. And I think you would help people understand and make sense of it, um, kind of, you know, translate it down to their level. So I think a lot of the, the, the really value in a seminar like this is not only here in Seth, but then some of the interactions that happen, you know, during the downtime. Um, and lunch and so forth uh, amongst the participants there. So if we can possibly fit in the budget, I, I know we all we'd love to have you at each one. So we'll have to get back to you on that. Yeah, ditto. Yeah, we'd love to have you there. And uh, we've tried to make this event as affordable as possible. At the same time, we are trying to balance everything in the budget just to be able to uh, to pull it off. 
And right, the richness of like that Montana event and all these people that had SEP on their radar suddenly were all together and the conversations were just continuous and through into the night. It was great. That's how we formed. That's how we're all together now, too. Well, I felt really terrible with the Montana event because it was like the second or third day that SEP was there that I got really sick and I, was, I missed a whole day. And then, and then the sickness was kind of weird in that it kind of made you feel like a vegetable. So, like for the next, for all the rest of his trip, I was kind of out of it, and I could hardly move. If I if I started to exert myself at all, then I just got sick again and had to go back to bed. Um, and so I was trying to like not move <laughs> the whole time, hold very still, <laughs> and uh, so I kind of feel like I missed out on a lot of stuff. Um, but you know, I still got to hear him talk um, about things. Hopefully, I'll be a little bit more lively on on this trip, um, and and we'll get some forgot. But along these lines of like the trips coming out and the the tickets and and I'm guessing I mean we've only been selling the tickets for a couple of weeks and I, my impression is is that they're about half sold now so by the time this podcast comes out people might have to race to go buy a ticket yeah it's starting to get fuller and if Seth does I think the Russians are looking at getting uh, whatever passports to get over that would that would fill up my end, I think, because I've got other people waiting in the wings, and yeah, we didn't expect it to go so fast. And and then there there's been mention of, and I I think we should leave out the particulars, but there's been mention of possibly selling uh, or giving possibly giving away one or more tickets on permies, but and and it's like uh, we may or may not do that. But um, uh, if we do that, the way to find out is through my dailyish email. And so, um, at some point in time, if we choose to do it, then then um, uh, that's where we'll announce it. There, it'll be it'll be a gift for the dailyish email people. <laughs> well, Paul, wouldn't it be amazing if you won it? <laughs> that's uh, for for all for all of the uh the I mean we about once a week now we're giving away a book or a DVD or or whatever um and so then one of the criteria is is that um uh Adrian who is managing all of that uh Adrian and I are excluded from winning and so that way it it doesn't seem rigged you're invited anyway <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Cool. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, that would be awesome. I, uh, I, I went to this uh, technical conference years ago, and the first time I went, it was because I won a free ticket to, and it was it was an amazingly excellent conference. And then at the conference, and they had this thing, and there's like 700 people there. And uh, they, they put everybody's name tag, because at the end of it, you don't need your name tag anymore, into this big barrel, and they roll the barrel, and they pull one out to be the winner for a ticket to the event next year. And I won it again. <laughs> <laughs> and how many did you put in there? And then, and then the next year, the next year they're doing that where they're pulling out the tags. And then the guy that runs the whole event, he said, okay, I just want to make it clear. Paul Wheaton does not win, even if I pull his name out. <laughs> He's got to give somebody else a chance. Well, lady Luck's on your side, man. 
Yeah, at least at that event, and it was it was an excellent event. It was really good. So, um, so yes, for this event, for this event, we may or may not do it. But the only way to find out is to be signed up on the dailyish email. So uh, we'll 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 figure that one out. Uh, um, probably we'll have it figured out maybe before this podcast airs. Yeah, I, th- um, I think we're willing to give too. I think we've been talking about that. I think you guys have been talking about it too. But at the same time. I don't want people who are listening to this to be thinking like, oh, well, then I'm going to not buy a ticket and wait and see if I win one. <laughs> we actually had some requests uh, for, from schools. Uh, there's, a, there's a school down here in L.A. that's requested a scholarship uh, for one of their students. And then we've actually had some contact from UC Santa Cruz. Um, one of the folks up there, a gentleman who's a professor and works with their sustainability program and their gardens. And I think Mark, Leave and I are going to be going up there to give a little presentation and talk about SEP and uh, we were, they, they had requested the possibility of uh, a scholarship for one deserving person who would then go back and propagate all the information to the rest of the class. So uh, that's something we're definitely considering, and we'd like to. We just want to make sure we cover our cost, obviously, um, because part of the dynamics of the workshop too is making sure it's not too crowded. We want people to have enough, you know, um, interaction with SEP directly, and, and um, you know, there's always the danger if you have too many people there, it could get diluted a little bit. So. I think we're shooting for around 50 uh, for each event, capping in about 50 people, um, which is you know smaller yeah. than Montana, but I think much bigger than that, and it could dilute a little bit. So, I think I think at the Montana event, I think that they also had it capped at 50, but then they didn't quite comprehend what capped meant. <laughs> <laughs> people just kept buying tickets, and they weren't sure what to do, you know. <laughs> <laughs> So it's like, you know, you got to take down your PayPal thing. See, so you got it. They'll not be sending in the money anymore. And uh, they just couldn't seem to get to that. And so they would tell people on the phone, no, we're sold out. But then people could still go online and buy a ticket. And right. then they had to honor the ticket. You know, you paid the money. And so, um, yeah, <laughs> I think that's what happened. But, uh, well, yeah, I think 50 is a good size. Yeah, and it's interesting. There is a lot of demand. I have, I have no doubt that we'll sell these out shortly because um, – we actually, uh, you know, Zach and Chad and I and Judith did a presentation last week uh, in Duluth, and it, the response was amazing. And it, it's interesting, the questions you get. We were uh, doing a presentation at a theater there downtown, and there were some really great, great questions, uh, kind of going back to when we started this conversation with the lake and the pond building and how to set get these things to seal and just the nuances of pond building. And we got a sneak peek at his newest book, which goes into, uh, goes into that in a lot more detail. Uh, I think that any other book that's come out yet, oh, yeah. and I, I think you've got an early copy of that, Paul, Deserts or Paradise. Um, that's because I'm special. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. And you've got a good relationship with the publisher. But um, thanks to Judith uh, and actually Chad, who ordered the books, we got some early copies of that. And it's really fascinating. And I think, you know, going back to when you were talking about the Tamara, uh, what's interesting about that is I can remember when we were digging out the lake in Montana, you know, it was about 12 feet deep and the excavators are working. And all of a sudden, that excavator dig down like the 13, 14 feet, and before just been dry dirt. And all of a sudden, you hit that vein, you know, that capillary of water deep in the soil, and all of a sudden, the water just started rushing into that lake, and it started to fill up pretty quickly with groundwater. Uh, I think in about three or four days, it was full of groundwater uh, versus Tamara. What's interesting is that that was all rainwater. That took about a year and a half to fill up because they didn't have that groundwater. Um, but as I think Chad or Zach had mentioned earlier in this podcast, um, all the springs that used to be the old springs have come back to life. And, and this is chronicled actually pretty well in a video that somebody had posted to Permies. I don't know if it was you, Paul, but um, it's called Tamara Sepulter. If you just go to YouTube and 
Google that. It's about a 12-minute video, which kind of explains that whole project. Um, and it's it's really fascinating how it's just brought life back to that whole landscape. It's amazing. Yeah. Uh, I, I, so the book, yes, Desert of Paradise, now out. I, I'm looking at my copy right here from uh, Permanent Publications. I'm not sure if it's available for sale in the United States or not yet. Um, but if it's if uh, maybe by the time this podcast comes out, it will be available for sale. Um, and uh, um, it's it's a it's it's a great book. Um, and oh, and I should mention you mentioned Southern California and you mentioned digging ponds and getting them to seal without a liner. And so then that reminds me, I'm going to be in Southern California. I am the keynote speaker at the Southern California Permaculture Convergence on March 9th and 10th. All right. Yes. And. And then, uh, but just before that, then we're going to be doing an Earthworks workshop uh, down there. Uh, in the, it's in the San Diego area, and uh, um, and all the details are on permies. Uh, but it's like um, uh, one of the things we're going to try and do is seal a pond. And and now I was on the phone with Neil yesterday, Neil Bertrando, and he was telling me that he stopped by and checked out the site, and he said, "Oh no." Oh no, he says it's like big rocks, and then there's cracked bedrock underneath it. Ooh. He's like, I'm not sure you're going to be able to get a seal on that. <laughs> and so I'm, and and I, and so I was first. My first thought was, we're boned. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know, clay or something. And so then that was what he was saying, get some clay. But I'm thinking, like, you know what? I want to see it. I want to. I want to get out there. Let's get a big old traco out there and let's dig down and see what's underneath it. Right. And uh, and then uh, let's let's talk about because it's possible. Maybe we we're, we're not going to be able to get a seal without bringing in some clay or something. But uh, I'm going to try. I'm going to. I I think we can. It's you know. It's like I haven't yet met one where we couldn't get a seal. But that's one where. Yep. If it's cracked bedrock, then yeah, the water would just go into the cracks. <laughs> And it's gone, and you can't. Ma- no matter how much you mash it around, you can't get it to seal. Right. So it's like, uh, woo! It's gonna be a challenge. <laughs> so yes, uh, it'll be a three-day Earthworks uh, workshop, and we're gonna spend the first day coming up with designs, and uh, and then the second day we're gonna start um, moving the earth around, and on the third day we're gonna plant it. And it's one of those workshops where people will work. And I want to make uh, everybody there is going to be required to make a design for the property, and then I'm going. Uh, you're going to be given five blank sheets, and um, I'm going to come by and tell you why your first one sucks, and then do it over, and then uh, you know we'll do that until you get one where I can't find anything to nitpick, and uh, so so your actual you're going to actually be designing the property, and and hopefully uh, some of the ideas that some of the people have will be uh, so awesome that they'll infect all the other designs also. So it's going to be a, a, a design thing, kind of like what SEP did. And of course, I'm I'm a, a powerful advocate of SEP's techniques. Um, although I, I I don't think I would have built a pond as big as he did in Montana, and I think I would have I would have designed all of the Montana site differently um, than what he did. But um, I'm of course uh, the fact that he and I have a difference of opinion must mean that I am wrong. <laughs> so, uh, well, I think, you know, Paul, to a certain extent, it, it's like you're an artist with a canvas. You know, just like you talk about Sep Creed Symphony and Seed and Soil, besides being the orchestra conductor, it, it's like you're an artist and you've got this blank canvas of land and, I don't know, maybe the excavators and the hoogle beds or your, your paint and your paintbrush, but uh, 
I don't, I, you know, there's not necessarily a, a, a wrong way to do it. There's definitely, we're only limited by our creativity. And, um, you know, so there may not be one right way to do it. There may be multiple right ways to do it. Um, well, yeah, that's true. And, and so, but I, at the same time, <clears throat> when I got to the land and I was talking to Katerina, I, I was predicting what I believe Sep would do. And it turns out I was totally wrong. And, and so, uh, um, but hey, uh, yeah, I think a lot of it might also be that. I think a lot of it also is, is that uh, he now does a lot more um, uh, lakes than, than uh, ponds than what he used to. And, and so I think uh, a lot of it is, is like he's pushing the envelope wherever he goes. How far, how much can I get away with here? How much right. sepification can I do here? And, then that's, <laughs> and I think that's a big part of what he's pushing for. And there are advantages the way he went about it. Um, yes. All right. So then after the, uh, um, the, the Bozeman, San Francisco, Detroit, Duluth uh, stuff, after that, Apparently, there's going to be this trip to Austria, which I don't think has a date yet. And and then the idea is to not only see the Kramaterhof, but also be able to see some of the other projects that he's worked on in Austria. Now, this is my understanding. Um, how much do we know about this so far? This is kind of the first time it's being released. Um, and we also be seeing the Holzerhof, Sepp's new place. Uh, you know, his son Joseph is taken over the Kramaterhof, and um, yeah, in a strange twist of fate, Sepp ended up with this land. <laughs> I love the story. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so, uh, um, and in fact, it's too bad we don't have Judith on anymore to kind of, you know, uh, confirm some of these things, but, but basically what happened was is that there was uh, some woman who hired Sepp, and, and so basically... Um, and then uh, apparently um, kind of got in there and screwed things up. You know, so Sepp's trying to do one thing, and she's trying to undo it, and it just sounded like a bunch of crazy. And so then in the end, she was very angry at Sepp, and so she sued him. And then the government listened to it, and then the government said, Lady, you crazy. <laughs> and she wrote a book and, called Bitter Harvest. Right. She wrote a whole book about how terrible Sepp Holzer is. But in the meantime, the judge was, like, uh, not impressed. And so the judge said, um, you're crazy, so uh, I'm going to take, I, the judge, I take, I hereby take all your property, and I give it to Sepp Holzer. And you, get, <laughs> and you get to go and spend a few years in the pokey to chill. <laughs> so it's just, I mean, you hear about that story, and then the story with the nuns where they wanted, to, you know, that one guy wanted a bribe. It's just funny. It's like Sepp walks into some situation, and he's like this, he, unbeknownst to him, he's like this walking oracle, and things are going on around him. It's it's funny. There's something following him around, I think. Well, and, and I, I kind of feel like, and it's like from his first book that was translated to English, um, which is kind of his biography... I mean, the things that he's doing are so different that to um, a lot of folks, they seem crazy. And so then they fight the crazy. And uh, I don't know, some people are just bored and need a hobby. And, and, so, and, and, and then so sure enough, Sepp went through all kinds of stuff. Like he wants to go and he wants to put a terrace in on his land. And then they say, oh, look, you built a road without a permit. So we're going to fine you for that. And, uh, and so then all the stuff that's just on his own land. 
then he finally gets revered as um, like the, the the new Mozart from Austria, and so he's like he's like an attraction unto the country. He's a celebrity. So now they're gonna you know they don't pick on him so much. But now when he goes out and he does things in other places, it's like there's people that are just that just have a need to hate somebody famous or something. But he keeps getting into these, uh, and it's not all the time. It's probably about one time out of ten. He gets somewhere, and there's just crazy going on there, and um, and so yeah, then then it's like this thing with this land. So he's got this new land, which basically came to him because uh, this this woman <clears throat> tried to sue him, and she ended up going to jail, uh, and all her all her possessions became his possessions. So it's like wow, um, yeah, and it's something like the libel laws in Austria sound tough. <laughs> don't 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 say a discouraging word about anybody in Austria. <laughs> I hope stuff doesn't end up with my land. <laughs> We're going to so, uh, really make some things happen with the government too, where we could do pilot projects and hopefully set a precedence because a lot of these rules are stopping people from doing the wrong thing but there's no environmental standard saying hey that's going to improve the area or that's a that's a damaged landscape you know there's so i think there's a lot of room for headway in that direction on these visits he makes here well i i think that a lot of the stuff where <clears throat> uh Sepp Holter was fined and and whatnot it's like okay you tried to build a road on your land without a permit and of course the whole permitting process is for the sake of the environment so you know, you're screwing up the environment, and so we have to fine you because you're just screwing up the environment. Now, of course, Sepp is not screwing up the environment. He's doing um, awesomeness for the environment. It's just that they don't know what awesomeness looks like. So yeah, they think it, goes, it looks like a road. Yeah, it goes back to, like, your Wheaton Eco scale, where, you know, Sepp Holzer's at the number one spot, and everything he does seems crazy to people, you know, two through ten. Um, and I think if, it's funny. It reminds me of a quote that said, like, all truth goes through three phases. You know, first it is ridiculed. Secondly, it is viciously attacked, and third, it's accepted as self-evident, and that's that's exactly <laughs> like Seth's projects. You know, I mean, if you read that yeah. first book, The Agro Rebel, it's like that guy just had litigious. I mean, he was getting sued left and right, and the authorities were all over him. He can't do this. That's not a terrorist. That's a road. Blah blah blah. And then, of course, in the end, you know, he created an absolute ecological masterpiece and uh, a new Garden of Eden, and, and the, you know, the truth of his principles were accepted as self-evident, but, man, he had to yeah, fight now. Yeah. Yeah. Now it's self-evident. Now right. now he's considered an artist. Now, if he goes and he takes on a piece of land, then everybody pretty much respects him as being the superhero that he is. Exactly. Um, you know, but but you're right. There's still going to be these occasions where somebody might not be aware of um, you know these things, and so it's kind of like, yeah, this is this is kind of a so how he got that piece of land is is I think I think a, a funny story, and um, and I think it's a and I see a lot of I see a lot of this in my own empire, but I I see a lot of it happening in a lot of places like. Uh, you know, there's there's these little tiny political things that go on, and it's like, oh no, we need to. There was there was something here in the Missoula area, like, well, we want to save this land. It's farmland. It's 80 acres, and it's being bought by developers. So we should save it. We need to save the farmland. And it's flat. It's in the floodplain. And the guy that's currently managing the land is like doing all of this Monsanto stuff. It's like he's just hosing it down with poisons. And it's like, okay, here's a here's a fascinating thing. He hoses it down with poisons. It's in the floodplain, and then along comes uh, the flood, 
which then just takes the poisons and poisons the crap out of all kinds of stuff. Yeah. And and it's like um so uh and you want me to get behind you and support the the farmer that's you know spraying it with toxic gick and you're thinking that that's a good thing. Yeah. No, I think I think sell it to the developers, the people who buy the land will be in a floodplain and then they'll get flooded every year. And uh how about this? How about if you go up on the slope over there and then um have that be some farmland? That would be awesome. And then what about like, oh, I don't know, permaculture? <laughs> There's a thought. I could stand behind that. Yeah. You know. Yeah. So but yeah, it's like you try and talk about permaculture to people that seem to be stuck on, on this level. It's like, oh yeah, they think you're crazy. It just sounds it sounds nutty. You gotta wait until they learn about organic, then you can start talking about, you know, some of the lower levels of permaculture. I think yeah. a lot of these people that are uh, hosing chemicals don't even know that they're hosers. <laughs> That's because they're not in Canada. <laughs> <laughs> Uncle Bob and Doug McKenzie there. Yeah, yeah, hosers, you bunch of hosers, eh? <laughs> All right, so um, uh, what have I left out about SEP coming to the United States again? Anything? I mean, it it sounds like these these are booked. These are, I mean, he, his, he's going to hit the ground, and then uh, he, he, he does five days, and then he spends one day getting to the next spot, and then he does another five days. I mean, woof, sounds like a packed schedule. Yeah, and you guys would be following the whole day. We're looking to make it a household name, really. I mean, we're going to see, I mean, if he's coming back every year and the way it's been spreading, I mean, with these presentations and seeing things go, I feel like, and having that book come out at the same time, it's really, uh, it's really encouraging. I know Judith is going to talk with Arnold Schwarzenegger. I, I guess he knows Steph Holzer. So, yeah, it's. It seems to be catching on. Uh, universities, uh, like University of Michigan, stating their uh, intent of working with them, and it looks like there's a a big dynamic that's going on. Wow. Yeah. So, <clears throat> do you guys know? I, now I know that Sepp's pretty famous for saying that you don't get to tell him what he's going to talk about. He's going to show up. He'll do whatever the hell he feels like. And you're just lucky to be tagging along. Uh, is that the format? <laughs> I think he's going to cover the basics, and then um, I think it'll be site and season dependent. But yeah, he'll have leeway to go in whatever direction he's feeling is going to be best. Right, which I think is a great format. Um, uh, and then a lot of the pod people also listen to Jack Spierko, and Jack Spierko attended the event, and he was not so impressed. Um, and and he kind of felt like um, people shouldn't be uh, if they're paying a bunch of money for a ticket, they shouldn't have to be planting potatoes. And um, and so I kind of feel like yeah, you don't know what's going to be going on when you get there. <clears throat> but as for each of these sites, will there be earthworks happening at each site? as part of it, or is he just going to stand up at the front of the room or just wander around the property and point at things? Yeah, and we're doing some earthworks at ours, and I know Detroit is. Um, we're going to try to in Montana, but it'll be weather dependent. Um, if it's warm and nice enough, we will be, but if the ground's frozen, we obviously won't be able to. And, you know, to speak to your point, one of the big things that differs from this year as opposed to last year is this year we're an organization bringing him over and education is the focus. Um, whereas last year he was brought over as a consultant and then this whole class happened out of it. 
This year it's really focused on education, on spreading this information, and so I think people will be um, even more pleased than they were in Montana with the format and everything. Okay, so it's going to be, <clears throat> it is going to be more, uh, uh, more about people learning stuff and less about, um, all right, you guys, you are now our labor for the day, which, yes. you know, for the, the labor for the day, I think that there are a lot of people that were like, not a problem. That is awesome. And then there were some people that were like, I took all this time off from work and I paid all this money and I don't want to do that. I want I want uh, the classroom thing. And and of course no one was we didn't know what it would, would be the format ahead of time. In fact, I tried to make a list of like here's the things he's going to be teaching on what days. And and he took that list and tore it into little pieces and flushed it down the toilet. Uh, <laughs> and 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 did that wave of his hand, that dismissive wave of his hand that he he does so well. <laughs> You know, I, I Montana was good, but there was, I think, what was it, a mile of hoogle beds? Um, uh, no, I, nearly a kilometer. Kilometer? Nearly yeah, a kilometer. I don't think we're going to have anything on that scale, and I think, like with Zach's, you'll be going to different sites. Um, I know we didn't even do a crater garden at Montana, so I think it'll be a little more varied in that respect, too. Right, right. So, I mean, yeah, you won't be in a spot long enough to be able to, to do that much. Yeah. And, um, and the one that I, that I attended four years ago, his format, I mean, it, 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 he was nailed down to certain things on certain days, <clears throat> but it was like, okay, for this weekend event, for this two-day event, it's going to be all about ponds and aquaculture. Um, and so he did. For that whole two days, that's what he stuck to. And uh, but for a lot of the other days, it was like whatever the hell he felt like talking about. Um, and but there was also a project that was going on simultaneously, which his son Yosef was involved in. And then um, they had like five or six people from Austria and and Germany in that area that were part of his program that were there, and they were like building all kinds of stuff while we were in the classroom. And then uh, we went out and we would spend like a half a day looking at it, and then they would point at things and stuff like that. So um, that's I, I imagine that this sounds like what your format's going to be, is that there's going to be a lot of stuff where you get out there and you look at it, but probably, I would imagine nobody's going to probably get their hands dirty unless they really, really want to. Yeah, That's my more, guess. Yeah, it'll be more education-focused for sure. But I imagine that if Sep points at the group and says, you all go do that, I mean, you know, what are you going to do? <laughs> and one of the things, Zep does really like to be getting stuff done and to have these demonstrations to show people. And I think that's one of the times that he's, one of the reasons why he's often gung-ho on getting out and doing stuff so that people in the future can see the example. Absolutely. And I do I do think that the uh, the thing in Dayton is... Uh, an amazing example. I mean, I've been needing footage of um, non-irrigated hugelkultur growing um, plants that people can recognize for years now. And finally, I now have it. And, and I immediately put it up on YouTube. And I think, it's, I think that that video alone, I mean, it's already, it's only, it hasn't been up very long, and it's already had over 100,000 views. I think that that video alone is, is changing the world in a big way. Yeah, so that's video. really about... I think it's really about what Sepp accomplished. He shows up, he plants some stuff, he walks away, and it does great with nobody tending to it. And um, and it, it's what an what an amazing and powerful demonstration. 
So, and it sounds like, you know, he's going to come and, and, and stir up some magic again. Um, all right. I'm looking forward to it. This is exciting. What else yeah. we got, fellas? Anything? Well, I think just that we've learned our lessons from the past one. And, and, you know, this is kind of a different format, too. Instead of being 11 days, this is five days. So there's going to be more education focused. I think people are going to come and just be blown away. And also, all three sites are, are much different. So it's going to be a really interesting dynamic experience. It'll be different at each site. Um, so we're, we're very excited about it. And uh, this is a continuing education process that we want to keep going. Um, I mean, essentially, this is the beginning of replicating STEPS 30-day Holzer certification, Holzer permaculture certification that right now is only done in Europe, uh, in Austria, and in Russia. Uh, this will be the only English-speaking one in the world for uh, translators and the first and only one done in America. So it is a unique opportunity, and, uh, you know, we hope folks can uh, take advantage of it. That's right. Now, if I understand this correctly, then uh, you, can, you can be Holzer permaculture certified by simply attending 30 days' worth of of these events. Is that accurate? Right. Yes. You, you attend 30 days, but you also have to do um, an independent project, and basically Zep next spring will be reviewing people. Um, they'll be presenting their projects to him, and then he'll be basically signing off that they have some level of mastery of the subject matter um, so long as he finds that their independent project is um, appropriate. So I want to I want to toss something by you guys. So I know that this event in Bozeman um, is a five day long event, and I'll be attending. And now uh, I've done the math, and and up to that this Bozeman event, I have put in twenty five days of hanging out with Sep. So that means at the end of the Bozeman event, I'll have put in thirty days. So now I'm kind of curious as as now the funny thing is I don't currently have land, um, and. Uh, um, and so it's like I don't I don't really have a, a a place to paint my portrait, so to speak, to be able to demonstrate my abilities. I, I wonder if Sep would accept the fact, uh, you know, something like uh, I don't know, like like having created uh, uh, 150 videos and uh, 200 and some odd podcasts and and a website that gets like you know 1.3 million people per month. I wonder if that might count as a project. <laughs> you know, he might have you go through a uh, obstacle course and a pop quiz, but I think. Uh, Either way, he's going to love you. <laughs> Possibly an honorary, uh, an honorary degree. <laughs> yeah, maybe an honorary or something, yeah. And at least until I can get, uh, get some land to be able to demonstrate my stuff and have him come by and look at it okay. or something. Yeah. But, you know, you, you bring up a good point. And as Zach said, yeah, there is going to be a final exam. So it's not only just attending the 30 days, but there is going to be a final exam where you have to present the set and he has to approve your design. So. Just like a typical, you know, 12, 14-day PDC, this is going to be twice as long. But, you know, it's also open. So if someone wants to just attend, you know, one or two of the events, that's fine. If someone wants to go for the whole certification, you know, each attendance will uh, count towards that. Right, right. So, so you can start off just going. In fact, for each of these five-day things or the, the three-day thing in Detroit, um, can a person just go for one or two days? Right. You know, we're trying we're trying to limit those because Zep doesn't like when people show up at the end and ask a bunch of questions that have already been asked. Um, yeah, so we're, that's true. He if really we have room like available, <laughs> we will, but it'll be dependent on how much they fill up. Yeah. Okay. All right. All right. So it's it's possible, but you'll uh, but the price is obscene for that. <laughs> yeah, and it's, it's a case by case scenario. Yeah, 
one one day costs almost as much as five. <laughs> yeah, so I'd like to encourage people that are in universities because I know the the Russian side they're linked up with the universities and they'd like to share with the American universities and I think there could be some great great interfacing going on there and it looks like it's already starting to spring up here the interest at universities so I encourage anybody to uh, visit our site and give us word if you uh, if you're interested in any of this whether it's at your university or somewhere else dealing with it Right, right, and and it does seem to me like uh, a lot of the stuff that's going on, and um, even even some of the most sustainable ag programs that I've heard of, uh, really still don't hold a candle to SEP stuff. So, um, and and I have I have talked to some people that have um, that are very advanced in soil science and the like, and um, and it's like they start off poo-pooing what SEP has accomplished. As like that didn't really happen, and then the more that they find out, and the more that they find out, the next thing you know, they're they have changed their mind, and it's like this guy is a master, and this guy is really getting it done, and he's way out ahead of everybody that they're aware of. I think, yeah, I think he's going to make a big splash. He's uh, yeah. it seems like with everything mounting, and we're getting word from different areas, and um, yeah, we've got some other things brewing that are really exciting. So we want to keep everyone that's being certified kind of networked and linked together and just to be stronger that way. And even a big piece of this puzzle is going to be heavy equipment operators. So, you know, we uh, at first would have wanted to bring SEP's operator of 30 years, whose name just happens to also be SEP Holzer. I think. <laughs> I think it's his second cousin. He's related somehow to this guy, but they use a tilt bucket that's not used too much in the U.S., except maybe in ditches. So we're, um, we'll put more word out on that. That's one thing we want to do is um, find some great operators and also start using a tilt bucket, and I think uh, it'll only get better. Yeah, that the bucket is really interesting. It's got like a, a wrist on it. So it's like your, your traditional track hoe arm, but those usually the bucket just stays uh it, it's the bucket constantly points at the operator. But when you get the wrist in there, then it can twist, it can rotate. And um it's yeah, so Sep is powerful keen on that rotating wrist on the bucket. And yeah. and, and and an operator that knows how to run those can can really do amazing things really fast. So yeah. um I, even if you don't have the rotating tilt bucket, even if you just have the tilt bucket, that gives you a lot more uh, versatility when you're creating this stuff. And on the mountain slopes, he also gets those uh, those um, track hose that are kind of like the spider style. They can go up a, a really steep slope, right. and and uh, and even places where it's like it's too rocky or bumpy, but they they move up the slope like a spider. Um, it's it's a kind of a crazy thing to see, but uh, and and then they'll also have the wrist on on the bucket, um, kind of a, a really bizarre traco contraption, but they can do amazing work um, in bizarre places. Yeah, uh, and so and but on, on the other side, uh, uh, I got to tell you, the idea of renting simply the traco, just a plain old traco that's just very large. And driving it yourself is always fun. <laughs> Don't shortchange yourself. Have a good time. Those things are awesome. 
<laughs> it's it's like you're eight years old again and you know playing in in the sand or something or maybe six but it's 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 uh those things are awesome so don't rob yourself of the opportunity to simply rent the contraption without the driver. And, uh, and of course, the, pro- the downside is that now you have to do it like eight hours a day the whole time you've rented it, or else you're not getting your money's worth out of it. Um, but they are fun to drive. Well, this kind of work is like it's like being in a sandbox. And the people that we had doing it, when they caught on and started really taking off with it, by the time they were done at the project, they said it was the best project they'd ever been on. The one guy had been doing it for 40 years, and the other guy had started when he was 12. It was a father-son team, and they both said this is by far the most enjoyable project they'd ever been on. Well, I think this wraps up our review of the book Sepulcher's Permaculture. And I think, I think that we did – I mean, the, the chapter six was sparse in the book and, and kind of outdated. But I think, I think we made up for it with this podcast. Um, and so, uh, I, fellas, do we have anything else to add to this podcast? Do you think we're good here? Sounds good. You know, just a uh, closing remark um, is what really excites me about all this is Zepp is excited to come over. He's excited to teach more Americans these techniques and these approaches. He actually canceled someone else to make the time for us. Um, so it's really an exciting opportunity. It's great to see that he's excited to come back to the States. Um, and it should be a really amazing spring. Yeah, I think he's, uh, he's, he's very excited about it. In fact, when you mentioned earlier, Paul, about the time between the events, there actually is two days between California and Bozeman. But for the most part, I suggested to June, I said, you know, he's 70 years old now. Does he need a little downtime? She's like, oh, no, no, no. He gets mad at you. When he landed in Detroit, the first thing he wanted to do is go see the site. The guy's just got amazing energy. He is passionate about it. He loves it. So um, we're real, we feel really privileged, and he's particularly excited about getting this knowledge out in America. He's really focused on America, um, because in a lot of ways, the, you know, as America goes, so goes the world in some cases. And I don't mean that to be like an arrogant statement, but just because of the population and the influence we have. It's, so he's really excited about getting that going, and, you know, hopefully, uh, hopefully folks will be able to make it. If you're interested, you can go to the website at holzeragroecology.com, and all the information's there. It would be great if we could get like some uh, some uh, people that are very influential to to participate in some of this. Like, Judith's I'm really not sure. on that. Okay. Oh, good, good, awesome. Yeah, we're hoping to have a dinner uh, with Zep and policymakers at each one of these locations, and so we're currently putting that together as well. Oh, yeah, anybody sweet. famous out there, feel free to contact us, and even that Paul Wheaton guy, if he's listening. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think you need people more famous than me. I'm I'm reaching as many as I can, but I I think it would be great to be able to get people that like um, I don't know uh, have a big television show or are some sort of uh, major lawmaker or something like that. So yeah, definitely. All right, if you like this sort of thing, come on out to the forums at permies.com where we talk about the mighty, the glorious, the amazing Sepp Holzer, homesteading and permaculture all the time.